May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable unto thee, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In spite of, or perhaps because of, the fact that we're in Easter season, I thought that today would be a good day to explore a relatively minor small topic, that of human suffering. And let me tell you, there is nothing greater in terms of the human suffering of a preacher when, as he stands awaiting to come out and to preach his sermon, he hears his deacon reading (laughs) the incorrect lesson. (laughs) But actually, actually, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. Because actually, what we heard was about the joy that we experience by following Jesus. And actually, believe it or not, I am pulling this out of the fire. However, the issue of joy in following our Lord and how we deal with the suffering that the world gives us is, believe it or not, extremely closely related. Let me explain what I mean. I had, it, I had an experience the last week or so that I think probably every priest gets at some point, but you think to yourself, oh, I don't want to, no, I don't want to hear this question. But I was at work, and someone who had found out that I was a priest came up to me and looked me square in the eye and said, how can you believe that blank? It's all make-believe. I mean, how can you believe in a God who would let there be suffering and death in the world? Now, we all have heard a question like that, and there are all kinds of ways you can approach answering it. You can come up with some nice platitudes that sound kind of gaudy, and that you can try to finesse it a little bit. But I recognized that, you know, this is not going to be the only time I get this question. And I thought to myself, it turned out that this individual moved on and didn't really want to hear the answer, but... His question stayed with me, and I've been thinking about it. Because I think if there is anything that a member of ordained clergy should be able to do, it's to be able to answer hard questions. Because actually, the hard questions that I have to answer, or the hard questions that they have to answer, or they have to answer, are the same hard questions you have to answer. You have to be ready and willing to make a testament to your faith. So we have to engage in this question. As it turns out, our reading for today, The Good Shepherd, actually, I think, begins, it's not the complete answer, but it begins to make an answer to that very question of human suffering. A complete answer, I think, is worthy of a class, a two-hour-long class. I'm not doing that to you. But I'm going to begin to make an outline for what I believe to be the answer. And this will be an opportunity of something that we can continue a discussion of in adult education today. So specifically, how does one engage in faith when you have a God who allows human suffering to exist? I think that we begin finding the answer if you look 
at the nature of what is written in our scriptures. I think that the Good Shepherd is a very, very good example. I'll explain it by way of a metaphor. When Karen and I went on our honeymoon, we went to Barbados. And when we were there, we did what a lot of newlyweds do. We ended up getting onto a rented catamaran, and we went out on a sail on the western end of the island. And I don't know, if, I don't, have people been to Barbados before? Water is beautiful. It is, like a lot of other places in the Caribbean, it's so clear and so blue and so lovely. And so we sailed out, and we're going further and further out, and there's still this gorgeous blue water, and you can see the bottom, and you can see the flats as they undulate underneath, and you keep sailing out, and you keep seeing the bottom, and you keep sailing out, and you keep seeing the bottom. And after about a half an hour of this, I asked the captain of the catamaran, wow, this is amazing water. How deep is the water about now? I mean, I was looking down, and I could still see the bottom. And I was thinking, okay, maybe 100 feet, 80 feet. And the captain looked at me, because obviously he had had this question before, and he smiled, and he said, we're a little bit over 1,000 feet right now. So I was looking down and seeing the bottom through 1,000 feet of water. When we have a good day in experiencing Scripture, it is not all that dissimilar to looking through a thousand feet of water and seeing with great clarity the message that is underneath it. And you have no better example of that than the Gospel of John. I think it is not unfair to say that if you compare the Gospel of John to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that you clearly are de dealing with a whole different animal. Now, there are many ways that you can distinguish it, but you could make the argument that the Synoptic Gospels are really kind of about the earthly life of Jesus. There are certainly exceptions to that, but that's kind of what they're about. John is a whole different kettle of fish. John has a depth and a clarity of the way that you look at the eternal that is unlike anything else in the world. It's not an accident. I was doing some studying and preparing a class that I'm teaching this summer on the Gospel of John, and I found a fact in the Church Fathers that I found astounding. I had never considered it before, but it blew my mind away. But this also has implications for the Gospel's relation to the Revelation. Don't forget that John also was the author of the Revelation of St. John, which we also assume was written by John. Clement of Alexandria says that John, who was exiled to Patmos, returned to Ephesus after the death of the tyrant. If the Revelation, then, was written on the island of Patmos and the Gospel was written in Ephesus, it would mean that John wrote the gospel in Ephesus before he was exiled to Patmos, which is highly unlikely given earlier evidence discussed. I won't go into that. Or the gospel was composed when John returned to Ephesus after his exile. Therefore, John composed the fourth gospel after he wrote the revelation on the island of Patmos. 
I'd like you to stop and consider for a second what that means for reading the Gospel of John. You may remember that the Revelation is also a writing unlike anything you experience in Scripture. And in many ways, it is unlike anything else because John shares with us in the Revelation something that you see nowhere else in Scripture, which is you see a vision of the eternal, of what it means to actually be sitting at the right hand of God. You see heaven itself. Now, if John composed the Revelation before he wrote his Gospel, it has, I believe, a consequence for how you read the Gospel of John, because what he is actually saying has been said after he's had a vision of what heaven itself looks like. It goes on to say, in here, that the prologues, the very first part of the Gospel of John, the prologues cosmological glimpse into the eternity of the word and the heavenly realms as John entered through that open door into heaven seems much more prescient when reading the first 18 verses of John with the Revelation as a backdrop. It also lends a renewed appreciation for the certainty and conviction evident throughout the rest of the Gospel that Jesus Christ was truly God and man. We have an eyewitness who had seen his glory not only on earth, but perhaps also in heaven. This has profound consequences for reading the Gospel of John. And we can apply that to our reading of the Good Shepherd. Because when we consider that what Jesus said in the Good Shepherd story, I am the Good Shepherd, I know my own and my own know me, as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What John is saying is nothing less that to be a sheep means to be following him, to be in close relationship to Jesus, and that the way in which you are in close relationship with Jesus is nothing different than the way in which Jesus is in close relationship to his Father. And from what I just read about the Revelation, the God, the Father that Jesus is in relationship with is nothing short of a cosmic understanding of the Alpha and the Omega, something that has no beginning, something that has no end. We are in relationship with something of that magnitude. And I think that that begins to have a consequence for how we understand suffering. There is no question that there is suffering in our world. There is no question that each and every person here in some way or form has experienced suffering. Perhaps it's what we might consider minor suffering as adults looking back on childhood if we have been made fun of in school. I'm not making light of kids. I know that those things are real. On the other hand, we could also agree that suffering also goes to the other end, that it's extreme pain, it's death. 
It's violence. It's neglect. Each and every one of us here have had an experience in which we can tap into that. Peter, in writing his letter, talks about what it means to be in relationship to God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he trusted to him who judges justly. He bore our sins on the bo- in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you've been healed. You have been healed by your proximity to him and thus by your proximity to a father who is all. It's not to say that our suffering doesn't matter. It does. It's real to us. On the other hand, if we are in relationship to something that is so vast as to dwarf every single meaning of anything that we experience in the entirety of our lives, does that have the power to impact the way in which we look at our suffering? I would suggest that a good answer to that question is to speak to someone who knows what suffering is. Perhaps it's you. Perhaps it's someone you know. But I'd suggest that if you have a conversation with that individual, that a person of faith will astound you with their ability to speak through pain, to speak through suffering, to speak through death itself, and talk about the great comforting wonder that is being in Jesus Christ as his Savior and yours. We could easily go on much longer. I won't do that. But I ask you today that as you consider the difficulties that you experience in life, you experience pain, you experience suffering, you may experience death, that of those close to you or perhaps even the prospect of your own, consider what it must mean to be in proximity to something that has no limits to its size, or to its power. Praise be to God that we have a God for whom the immensity of his love blots out everything, including the pain that we can experience in this life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.